Today on the Matt Wall Show, the White House moved the American flag to the side this week in order to put a pride flag in its place. Meanwhile, the capital city of New York put up a pride flag on City Hall for the first time while also removing a memorial to a Revolutionary War hero. The symbolism says a lot, and none of it is good. Also, Donald Trump speaks out against his political prosecution by the Biden administration. The Good Samaritan Daniel Penny comes out for the first time on video to tell his version of the story. And Megan Fox lashes out at people criticizing her for dressing her sons in girl clothes. We'll talk about all that and more today on The Matt Wall Show. The one-year anniversary of Roe v. Wade being overturned is coming up, and since then, the left has lost their minds. Pro-life efforts, which are more important now than ever, are booming. You heard that right. Despite the narrative, pro-lifers didn't go away. They increased in numbers. In fact, 40 Days for Life is changing hearts and minds in the most blue pro-abortion states. They've had a record number of locations uh, since Roe was overturned. They have grown in both volunteers and locations. With about 1 million volunteers in 1,500 cities, they hold peaceful vigils outside abortion facilities. This success has come with new unwanted attention from the federal government and the DOJ in regards to uh, free speech as well. As one of the largest pro-life organizations in the world, no one is in a better position than 40 Days for Life to end abortion in each state in a post-Roe America. You can help them fight the ongoing legal battles of protecting free speech for their volunteers. Help them defend free speech by giving a tax-deductible gift of any amount at 40daysforlife.com. That's 40daysforlife.com. It used to be that when someone made a statement and then made another statement that implied something completely different, we, we had a name for that. We called it a contradiction, and it wasn't considered a good thing. You know, not too long ago, contradictions could end political careers in this country. When Tim Murphy said publicly that he was pro-life, but then privately told a woman to kill her baby, he had to resign from Congress. Al Franken met the same fate after he uh, bought into the Me Too hysteria and then fell into its crosshairs himself. But a lot has changed in the few years since Tim Murphy and Al Franken were forced out of Congress. All of a sudden, contradictions are everywhere, particularly in the political world. The only way to ensure world peace is to fund a war, foreign policy experts tell us. We are a sanctuary state, but we don't want any more illegal immigrants, say Gavin Newsom and Eric Adams. Uh, men can turn into women, gender studies professors shriek. Euthanasia is health care, the Canadian government insists. All of these statements are contradictions, but you're hearing them all the time now. In revolutionary periods, this is nothing new. Mao even wrote an essay entitled On Contradiction a century ago. Mao understood well that contradiction drives social change. Maybe the most important contradiction that revolutionaries must embrace, Mao argued, is the relationship between construction and destruction. On their face, these two concepts are polar opposites. Tearing something down means ruining it. Building something means creating it. If you want to build something new, you lay a foundation, you get to work. You don't wreck what you have. Um, that's how the bourgeoisie saw it anyway. But Mao didn't see it that way. A half century ago, Mao famously explained, quote, there is no construction without destruction. In other words, there is a logical relationship between the two concepts. Creating a new society, one totally unlike whatever came before, requires wrecking the old society. Creating new symbols requires wrecking the old symbols. Mao's teachings led to, of course, tens of millions of deaths, the destruction of historic artifacts, mass starvation. The last thing you'd ever want to do is, uh, is or the last thing you'd want our political leaders in this country to do is follow his ideology and try to emulate it, but that's exactly what's happening. So this weekend in Albany, the uh, capital of New York, we saw maybe the clearest example in recent history of both construction and destruction happening simultaneously. Under the cover of darkness at 5.30 in the morning, the city removed a statue of Revolutionary War hero and U.S. Senator Philip Schuyler. 
And at the very moment that workers took Skylar's statue away, the so-called progress pride flag was waving in the background for the first time in the city's history, by the way. So here's what that looked like. You can see it there. Taking the statue away, and then we've got the, um, the multiple pride flags flying proudly uh, as the statue is hoisted away, including the brand new non-binary, BIPOC, trans, whatever flag. They got all the flags there. Now, if that seems like a carefully engineered juxtaposition, it is. It's choreographed to deliver a very clear message. Mao's disciples in the New York state government know that if they want their new flag to have any kind of legitimacy, then Philip Schuyler's statue can't remain. You can't have construction without destruction. If you want revolution, you can't introduce a new idol without erasing the one that came before. So that's exactly what the local government did, as explicitly as they possibly could have done it. If you're not trying to engineer a revolution, if you're just an average person living in New York with reasonable political views, uh, what few of those may remain, then none of this really makes any sense. What was wrong with that statue exactly? As far as can be told here, no one ever bothered to ask a significant number of New Yorkers that question. No one ever ran a poll on this, at least not one that we could find. There was certainly no statewide referendum on whether people actually wanted Philip Schuyler's statue to be removed. A few bureaucrats in New York just decided to do it a few years ago, and this weekend they cut through the red tape and they did it. A local news station did conduct a man-on-the-street-style interview with a couple of residents uh, you know, in the city to get their perspective, but none of them could explain why the statue is being removed. Even the people who supported removing it couldn't really explain why they supported it. No big surprise there, but let's watch. It feels good. The people have been listened to. And it feels good. No I'm just problem. happy that taken down if the history behind it is not something that should be, you know, celebrated. Mary Liz Stewart is the executive director and co-founder of the Education Center. I think it's time. Uh, I was glad to see some action finally taken on an issue that actually uh, percolated, what, about four years ago, I think. She says the group of teenagers spent a whole school year investigating a whole variety of aspects that related to the statue. Not only the history of it, but why was it made? What the cost was to make it? And what other communities were doing with controversial statues that related to enslavement? Stewart says the students wrote to Mayor Sheehan recommending it be removed but not destroyed. Rather, to preserve it and use it for educational purposes. One of the things that was very important for the teens about moving the Schuyler statue was the fact that, from their perspective, City Hall should be a place that's welcoming to everybody in the community. And it was hard to say that was the case with Phil, you know, standing there. Yes, a century-old historic artifact memorializing a Revolutionary War hero was not only taken down, it was taken down at the behest of a group of teenagers. And the primary reason, as we heard in the clip, is that the absence of the statue will make City Hall more, quote-unquote, welcoming. But welcoming for who? If the standard is that any unwelcoming statue needs to go, then uh, why exactly can't we destroy the monument of George Floyd that sits, for example, outside City Hall in Newark? But George Floyd didn't own slaves, you might say. Well, that's true. All George Floyd ever did was break into a woman's home with five other people, hold a gun to her chest, rob her in front of her kid. And then getting out, after getting out of prison, all George Floyd did was take enough opioids and meth to kill a horse before trying to rob a store and fighting with several police officers. Despite all that, you're not allowed to even criticize the George Floyd statue. You'll lose your job if you do. Under the new rules, George Floyd's statue is welcoming. The Revolutionary War general is unwelcoming. 
You understand that? Well, pr probably you don't understand it, but then you aren't supposed to understand because part of the point behind these arbitrary decisions is that they make no logical or moral sense. You're meant to go along with it, whether you understand or not. We, we, we might ask uh, why, but the powers that be will treat us like we're children and there are impatient parents. Because I said so, they respond. It's also contrived. Philip Schuyler is an iconic figure of the Revolutionary War era. He's one of the reasons this country exists today. Multiple towns and forts are named after him in New York. And curiously, no one had a problem with him until very recently. Ten years ago, in an article, the Albany Times Union describes Schuyler this way, quote, Philip Schuyler was a leading American statesman and a key general in the American Revolution who served at the pivotal Battle of Saratoga. He was named a representative to the First Continental Congress of Philadelphia and an advisor to General George Washington, who stayed at Schuyler's mansion in Albany. The Times Union went on to describe Schuyler as, quote, instrumental in the victory of the American colonists at the Battle of Saratoga in the fall of 1777, a turning point of the Revolutionary War. Residents of Albany, fearful that their city might be occupied by British soldiers, instead celebrated an unexpected victory at Saratoga. It was the first major win for the colonists, and the residents of Albany rang church bells, fired cannons, roasted an ox, and gathered around a large bonfire. Schuyler returned to the city of his birth as a hero. Now, you can read the whole article. It's still on the Times Union's website from 2013. There's not a single mention of slavery or slaves in the entire piece. But guess how the Times Union, the same newspaper, describes Schuyler now? Here's a recent article from the paper from this year. Quote, while noted as a politician and revolutionary war hero, Schuyler enslaved over a dozen people at his Saratoga and Albany homes. The Times Union of 2023 goes on to cite, and this is not a joke, a report by five high schoolers who say that Schuyler is a bad man and his statue has to be removed. That's the report you heard referenced in that news clip as well. So here's how the Times Union describes the findings of these high school students. Quote, the report titled What to Do with Phil, a 2022 report from the Young Abolitionist Leader Institute, was created by five Albany high school students who met between October 20, uh, 2021 and June with two adult facilitators. While the report notes Schuyler's accomplishments as a Revolutionary War general and politician, his legacy is still marked by owning human beings, it says. This is also the report that the Albany government relied on to justify removing the statue. Facile does not begin to describe this. I mean, in the 18th century, no one had the same attitude towards slavery that we do now, even the people who opposed it which relatively few people did back then for, on a global scale. It's not surprising that a bunch of dumb, arrogant kids would lack the proper historical perspective and think themselves qualified to pass moral judgment on historical figures who lived 250 years ago, but that's where adults are supposed to step in. The problem is that there aren't very many adults left in this country. What's really going on here is that Schuyler, like Jefferson, Washington, Lincoln, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, all the other historical figures who've had their monuments destroyed, is that uh, you know these are heroes of a different nation. One that the city of Albany considers to be a foreign enemy, basically. And they know they have to erase him if they want their revolution to succeed. The Biden administration understands this as well, obviously. Look at this grotesque display currently hanging at the White House. They put this up over the weekend. And that is a pride flag hanging on the White House and it's in between two American flags. There are similar displays all over the country, of course, at 30 Rock and so on. But putting this flag at the White House, just like the flag at Albany City Hall, has particular implications. 
And, you know, most conservatives, as that was uh, put up over the weekend, reacted to it. And we're saying that it's horrific and it's evil for the White House to not only fly the pride flag, but to give it a place of primacy in between two American flags. And of course, it is both of those things. It's horrific and evil for sure. But what they don't understand is that the White House is also properly representing its own nation, which is not our nation. Okay, we are two nations in one. There is the old United States that conservatives still cling to and cherish. And there's a new country with its own flag, its own traditions, its own heroes and foundational myths, etc. That's the nation that the Biden regime, the media, academia, Hollywood all speak to and represent. Why do you think that the city of New York took down Teddy Roosevelt's statue recently? I mean, liberals used to love him. He was one of the greatest presidents this country ever had. He broke up big monopolies. He was well-read. He saved the middle class. He established national parks. He was a pioneer, an explorer. They took down Teddy Roosevelt's statue in New York for a specific reason, which was to replace it. Instead of Teddy Roosevelt, New York recently put up the horned statue of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And that's now happening at scale. The nation we had before is being replaced. It's not just that demographics are changing, though they are. The activists who are leading this revolution, like all totalitarians, understand that to take full control, they need to erase our shared history. And they're executing this plan, this plan right in front of us, in plain sight, as obvious as they possibly can. While conservatives are debating the proper positioning of the American flag in relation to the pride flag at the White House, the government is going out in the middle of the night and destroying the symbols they don't like. They're not asking your opinion about it. They're just doing it. And with that in mind, it's not hard to wonder, like, what else will they take away before you even realize it? A lot more than statues. Soon the government may be able to kidnap your children if you don't subscribe to the cult of gender ideology. That's happening in Canada. It's been happening for years now. And that's an actual bill in California right now, which we'll talk more about in a few minutes. But they will label you a child abuser and put you in prison for wrong think so the state can raise your child. That's the ultimate goal of this push for inclusion, quote unquote, which of course is fundamentally about excluding anyone with traditional views and in particular religious views. The totalitarians running the government, like all totalitarians throughout history, are obsessed with using their power to make future generations subservient to their rule. That's the reason they're sponsoring pride parades that expose children to deviant sexual fetishes and, and everything else. That's the reason they're destroying and replacing everything they can. It took the, the single deadliest famine in world history to stop Mao. What will it take to stop the revolution that's taking place right now in this country? And the longer this goes on, the longer sane people stay quiet and watch as it all happens the more likely it is that, unfortunately, we're going to find out. Now let's get to our five headlines. Buying a new car can be a stressful experience for anyone, especially if you're a first-time buyer or if you have no credit. Before you walk into a dealership and spend the entire day with the crowds, the stress, the potential to not even find the right car, you need to check out CarZing. CarZing is completely changing the way that you buy a car online. By partnering with credit agencies, leaders, and over 25,000 dealers nationwide, CarZing provides you with everything you need before stepping foot into the dealership. Once you find the right car at your ideal budget, all you got to do is bring your saved deal voucher with you to the dealership to finalize your next ride. It is so simple. Even if you're not in the market for a new car, you just check out CarZing anyway. CarZing's online window shopping experience goes beyond mere images. You can dive deep into each vehicle's 
specifications, features, and performance capabilities. Zoom in on craftsmanship at the uh, interior, marvel at the cutting-edge technology, and admire the meticulous attention to detail that sets these automobiles apart from the rest. CarZing helps make your experience faster, cheaper, and less stressful. So visit CarZing.com slash Walsh today and find the best deals near you. That's CarZing.com slash Walsh. Daily Wire reports, former President Donald Trump said Saturday that the deep state was coming after him and his supporters in his first speech since being indicted on federal charges related to his handling of classified documents. Trump spoke openly about the 37-count indictment to about 2,000 Republicans gathered in Columbus, Georgia at the State Republican Conference. The 2024 presidential candidate is accused of the willful retention, retention of national defense information, corruptly concealing documents or records and making false statements. Trump said, quote, the ridiculous and baseless indictment of me by the Biden administration's weaponized Department of Injustice will go down as among the most horrific abuses of power in the history of our country. Many people have said that. Democrats have even said it. This vicious persecution is a travesty of justice. And then he said, in the end, they're not coming after me. They're coming after you. And I'm just standing in their way. Now, um, there's obviously been a lot of discussion about the particulars of this indictment and the many counts against Trump, 37 counts, uh, I'm, I'm not interested, of course, in, in any analysis from anyone in the legacy media or anybody on the left, because these people will always say that Trump is guilty of whatever he's accused of. And whatever he's accused of is always the worst thing anyone's ever done in history. And so that's like, we don't need to listen to their analysis. We know that's what it's going to be, um, which is why it's pointless to pay attention to them. But analysis from people on the right can be interesting, and I've read plenty of that, and, and I will say that I've seen a number of people on this side, people I consider credible and trustworthy, saying that uh, this could be a serious problem for Trump, and that even if he didn't commit any crimes, he did act in a way that made it easy for those who are trying to take him down, you know, like handing his own head on a silver platter, basically. And there may be some truth to that. You know, it's, it's, um, it's not fair, it's not right, but the fact is that, that we, you know, if you're on the right, if you're a conservative, we are all under far more scrutiny than anyone on the left. Um, not as much as President Trump is, but, uh, but obviously, but especially those of us with a platform, with a profile. Uh, and even if you don't, you know, you're under scrutiny and we're held to standards that the other side isn't held to. That's the fact. It's not right, but it's the fact. Um, it shouldn't be the fact, but it is. And so that's all the more reason why we have to be extremely disciplined, very smart. We have to keep our wits about us so that we, we don't hand them an opportunity to take us out. They might take us out anyway, but if they will, it shouldn't be because we made it easy on them. You know, and, and all that is true. But that's still not the point here, in my view, because whatever Trump did or didn't do, we all know. I mean, everybody knows and nobody can credibly deny that they are going after him for political reasons. That's the motivation behind it. And they're trying to take him down for things that others like Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden have also done. This is a politically motivated prosecution, which is being carried out by the president during an election against his own challenger, which has never happened before ever in history. I mean, it really is true. So when Trump, Trump, um, Maybe maybe prone sometimes to uh, hyperbole, and, and uh, you know I, I will confess that I am sometimes as well. But when he says that this is no one's ever seen anything like this before, that that is one hundred percent the case. Like nothing like this has ever happened before. Um, and so if you value 
our democratic system that we're always told so much about. And if you want to maintain order, if you want to preserve our civilization, really, this is not something that you do, period. You just, you just don't do this. You don't try to imprison your political opponent who is currently running against you for the, for the same office. That's something that you do if you want to burn it all down in pursuit of power and in an effort to demoralize and terrorize your political enemies. If you care about the system, if you, if you care about preserving our, our democratic uh, way of life and all the rest of it, then you don't do this. But if you don't care about that and you want to rip it all to shreds, then this is what you do. And it's what the Biden administration is doing. Um, so even apart from the facts of the case, this is absolutely their motivation. It's their reasoning, and it's a, it's a horrifying reality, uh, but it is the reality. Which brings me to my last point, which is very simple, which is that uh, Republicans need to win in 2024. I know that's not, uh, that's not any big news here. Okay? I'm not, this is not some, some penetrating new insight you hadn't thought about, but I mean, it really is that simple, truly. This is why I've said for months now that in the primaries, I'm a single-issue voter, and the single issue is winning. That, that's the only thing that matters. It's like we have to win because nothing else matters if you don't win. Everything else that you might do, all the other items on your agenda, none of that means anything if you don't win. So we need to win. And that is all that matters. Somebody needs to beat Biden. He cannot be allowed to win re-election. Needs to be beaten. And then when uh, he is beaten, he needs to be prosecuted. Biden needs to be prosecuted, his junkie son, Hillary Clinton, her degenerate husband, all of them. And then go and pull out Epstein's black book and prosecute everybody in there. I mean, just prosecute everybody. Democrats have to be stopped and there must be a response. Okay, they have to understand that when you escalate, there will be a response. There will be backlash. There will be consequences. It's not going to be one-sided. So if you choose to escalate, you need to, you need to understand what you're choosing. You know, mutually assured destruction. It's the, unfortunately, it's the only path forward. Because the other option is one-sided destruction. I mean, the best option of all is no destruction at all. Like, that's, that's what I would prefer if there was just no destruction. But um, that option has been taken away. That's just not an option. And so what we have to choose from is mutually assured destruction or one-sided destruction, where we are destroyed, but they are not. Uh, and, and that's not an option that I find particularly appealing, I must say. So we have to win. Um, I, you know, and, and it's talking about hyperbole, uh, you know, unfortunately, especially in the, in the social media era and the era of cable news, every single presidential election, for, before every presidential election, Everybody says, well, this is the election that's going to make or break us. We need to win or nothing will ever be the same. You know, the future of America hangs in the balance because of this election. Um, And we've said that many times, and it hasn't quite been true many times. Like, everybody says that on all sides. This time, though, it really is different. Like, I just, I can't even, it's hard to fathom what four more years of this will be like. Um, under a, a, you know, a president who is fully, has fully succumbed to dementia at that point, completely lost his mind. And so his administration is being run by people who are not him. Um, 
and where does it go from there? It's, it's hard to even fathom. And we don't want to find out, is all I can say. Report from the Daily Wire says, Daily Wire co-CEO Jeremy Boring called out YouTube in a Twitter thread on Sunday, revealing a series of violations leveled against his uh, company's shows that he cast as a betrayal of the video platform's stated commitment to open debate. In just the last 90 days, Boring said accounts associated with the Daily Wire have received 104 violations for hateful and derogatory content, mainly directed at commentary about transgender issues. There have been more than 200 violations in the past few months, he added. Accounts for Matt Walsh, Ben Shapiro, Candace Owens, Michael Knowles, Andrew Clavin, Brett Cooper, and Jordan Peterson have all received violations, Boring said. Penalties include Walsh being demonetized last month, as you know. Um, and the latest is that Owens and Knowles are being suspended for seven days after receiving a second strike. And Peterson got his first strike. That's uh, three strikes in 90 days and an account. Um, well, once you get three strikes, the account is deleted. That's what, that's what happens. So apparently, Candace Owens and Michael Knowles are on their second strike. All YouTube has to do is find, uh, find some sort of uh, pretense to give them a third strike, and they're banished from the platform forever. Um, Boring said, quote, everyone, uh, you know, everyone knew the truth then, just like everyone knows men are not women. YouTube only does more damage the longer it keeps its finger on the scale. The Daily Wire has taken a firm line against the radical transgender craze, especially when it comes to minors being subjected to irreversible chemical and even surgical treatment. So um, this is what's happening, and it's, it's all about the trans issue. So it's, like I said, 100 violations. Almost all of them have to do with the trans issue. Um, and they also are violations of policies that are not written anywhere, that, have not been, that were not told to anyone ahead of time. So YouTube basically just decided a few, few weeks ago that um, mis, quote-unquote misgendering is now going to be a violation of their terms of service. They never said that before. That was, that was never said. But they decided it, and now they're using that as a pretense. And they're also, it's not even like, okay, we've changed our policy, and this would be bad enough. If YouTube said last month, let's say, for example, um, we've changed our policy and now misgendering is against the law here on YouTube. You can't do that anymore. If you do that, we're going to kick you off. Uh, and if you do that from now on, we're going to kick you off. That would be bad enough. But they're not, that's not even what they're doing. They are effectively changing the rules and then, and then retroactively imposing those rules on content that was made before the rule was changed. Now, they'll claim that they're not changing the rules at all because they never said that you could, quote-unquote, misgender. Uh, yes, but it was never stipulated. And, you know, it's like thousands of videos were posted on the platform every month for years with people using biologically correct pronouns, and they never said anything about it. They never, they never violated anyone for it. And then they decided that they're going to start doing it. So obviously the rule did change. But the way that they protect themselves and they protect themselves from lawsuits and everything else is by uh, making the rules intentionally vague, intentionally opaque. You know, you, with policies like, well, you can't have hateful conduct. You, uh, you, 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 can't, you can't engage in harassment. What does harassment mean? Like, how, how can I harass somebody with a YouTube video? Okay, if I'm sitting here in a studio and I make a YouTube video, there's nobody else around me. And I posted to this platform with millions of other videos. Um, how could I be harassing someone? 
I mean, I suppose I could think of some ways that you might be guilty of harassing somebody. Uh, or, or you might try to you might try to encourage others to harass someone. Like there, there are ways you could do that. Is that what they mean? Does it mean that you know if I go on YouTube and I give out somebody's home address and I say, "Okay, everyone, grab your pitchforks and go to this person's house." Well, obviously you can't do that. Is that what you mean? Well, no, they don't mean that. Well, they mean yeah, you can't do that. But now they decided that uh, if you just use the word "him." In relation to a man who prefers to be seen as a woman, now that's harassment. Didn't say that before. They never stipulated that before, but they keep it vague just for this exact reason. So the question is, why are they doing this now? I mean, like I said, they're, they're, for, for years and years and years, thousands of videos posted to their platform every month with people talking, speaking openly and honestly about the, the trans issue using biologically correct pronouns, all the rest of it. And that was the case for years. It was never an issue. It was never a problem. And now they've decided that it is. And why is that? Well, the answer is obvious because we're winning. Like we're having a major impact. So you can look at the legislation that's changed. You can look at um, cultural changes. You can look at uh, the you know polls and, and surveys and all that and see the way that... Um, Public opinion is shifting in our direction on this issue, and you know, all of that is a is a good indication that we're having success. But you really don't need any of that because the number one indication is this: when you've got these major platforms like YouTube who come back around and say, "Oh, you know what? Uh, you can't say any of that anymore." So you're making these arguments and you're saying these things that are very compelling to lots of people and you're getting through to people and you're persuading them. And so uh, you can't do that. That's not going to be allowed. That is the real crime we committed. That's, that is the actual violation that we have committed. Um, we have been persuasive and effective. Whatever else they say, what, you know, whatever language they use in their, in their um, obscure terms of service and all the rest of it, the, the real rule is, is that simple. That if you disagree with them, if you disagree with their ideology, that is YouTube's ideology, which is the same as the left's ideology, which is just leftism. If you disagree with it and you disagree effectively and persuasively, um, then that's a violation. And you can be as ineffective as you want. Sure, there's lots of other... That's why, you know, anytime a conservative gets, uh, gets penalized by YouTube, they always look at other conservatives that are on the platform and they say, well, what about them? Why aren't you going after them? You know, they're doing things, they're, they're doing the same thing. Um, or, in fact, they might even be more offensive by your standards. But no, the reason they're targeting you is because they have, they have um, determined that you are a threat, a special threat. And that's why now they're going after the entire Daily Wire you know, um, platform. All right, there's a new video of Daniel Penny, who's the hero of the New York City subway system, who's being persecuted right now for being a good Samaritan. Um, and this was a, a video that I believe was released by his lawyers over the weekend. And this is the first time that we've seen Daniel Penny on camera 
giving his version of events, talking about what happened that fateful day on the subway system. And uh, let's play a little bit of this and listen. East Village in Manhattan. So I take the subway multiple times a day. In this instance, I was coming from school. I got out of class around 2.15, and I took the J I was at J Street Metro Tech, took the Uptown F train. Um, at 2nd Avenue, um, a man came on, stumbled on. He was, appeared to be on drugs. Um, the doors closed, and he ripped his jacket off and, violent, and threw it at the people sitting down to my left. I was listening to music at the time, um, and he was yelling, so I took my headphones out to hear what he was yelling. And the three main threats that he repeated over and over was, I'm going to kill you, I'm prepared to go to jail for life, and I'm willing to die. You know, this, is a, this was a scary situation, and uh, Mr. Nearly came on, he was, he was threatening, he's, he's a, I'm 6'2", and he was taller than me. So it was, and there's a common misconception that Marines don't get scared. We're actually taught uh, one of our core values is courage. And courage is not the absence of fear, but how you handle fear. And, you know, I was scared for myself, but I looked around, I saw women and children. He was yelling in their faces, saying, saying these threats. I couldn't just sit still. Some people say that I was holding on to Mr. Ely for 15 minutes. This is not true. I mean, between stops is only a couple minutes. And so the whole interaction lasted less than five minutes. Some people say I was trying to choke him to death, which is also not true. I was trying to restrain him. Uh, you can see in the video, there's a clear ride. I want to play, play more of this, but I just want to pause it there for a second because what you should understand is that the, the claim that Daniel Penny was choking Jordan Neely for 15 minutes... There was never any basis for it. I mean, you, I'm sure you've heard that. And uh, that's, you might have even thought that that's just a fact of the case. Because from the very beginning, this is what was reported, was what was on social media, 15 minutes. There was never any basis for it. That was, never, that was not based in fact ever. Um, it's just something that was invented. Like at most, and this is the way it always goes, at most you might have one eyewitness uh, who says something like, yeah, I think it was like 15 minutes. And I'm not even sure if that was the case here or not, whether or not there was an eyewitness who even said that. But if there was, it doesn't mean anything. Um, you know, eyewitness testimony can be valuable in certain ways, but it's also famously, un infamously unreliable, especially when it comes to estimating times. Okay, you know, eyewitnesses, uh, these are like grown adults who witness something like this. There's just something about it when you're witnessing something that's really unusual and, uh, and you know, out crazy and outrageous, whatever. It's, your sense of time becomes warped. Um, and suddenly you're, it's like you're a child all over again. It's like one of my kids, if they're estimating, you know, I send them up to clean their room. And they come out two minutes later and I say, what are you, what are you doing? It's like, I was in there for two hours. That's what it is for eyewitnesses. So, so maybe someone said, I think it was 15, 15 minutes he was choking him. It was never 15 minutes. It was a few minutes. It was never choking him to begin with, but it was a few minutes that this whole thing happened. Because of course it was. It's like there, there's, there, there isn't, it's the New York City subway system. There isn't going to be a 15-minute stretch in between stops anyway. Do you know how long 15 minutes is? Can you imagine people wrestling around on the ground for 15 straight minutes? It's, it's, that, that was always outlandish. But uh, lots of people accepted it as a fact. 
And they accept it as a fact because people tend to believe whatever they're told. And also, I think that one of the, you know, we face many crises in this country. And one of the crises that I uh, talk about a lot is that um, uh, for so many people, their, their, uh, their BS detector is completely broken. Which, and I don't, know, I don't know how you fix it. How do you fix a, defect, a defective BS detector? I don't know. But it's just some, it's, a, it's an intuition that you should have. Otherwise known as common sense. Where there are certain things that you hear, and even if you don't have any evidence to the contrary, you should still, when you hear it, think, yeah, I don't know about that. And somebody might say, well, do you have any evidence? No, I don't, but it just doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound right. Could be true, theoretically. Doesn't sound right, though. And the and that is, like, always the case when it comes to the, the whoever the new BLM martyr is. You know, one thing that we know, when there's a new BLM martyr, the initial story that we're told is always wrong. Always. I don't think there's been one exception to this rule. I can't think of one. I mean, I can think of dozens of BLM martyrs, both major, you know, major saints in their religion and minor saints as well. In every single case, the initial story is wrong. And not only is it wrong, but it defies common sense. Like you should know that it was wrong the second that you hear it because it, it, it sounds ridiculous. It doesn't sound like something that actually happens in real life. Michael Brown with his hands in the air, hands up, don't shoot, and then just gunned down by, by the police in broad daylight for no reason. That sounds like something that happens in a movie. It doesn't sound like real life, and it turns out, of course, it wasn't. Let's keep uh, listening. Eyes and fall of his chest, indicating that he's breathing. I'm trying to restrain him from him being able to carry out the threats. And then some people say that this is about race, which is absolutely ridiculous. I didn't see a black man threatening passengers. I saw a man threatening passengers, it's a lot of whom were people of color. The man who helped restrain Mr. Neely was, was a person of color. And then a few days after the incident, I, I read in the papers that uh, a woman of color came out and called me a hero. What, I don't believe that I'm, I'm a hero, but uh, she was one of those people that I was trying to protect. We were all scared. Mr. Neely was yelling in these passengers' faces and they looked terrified. Um, the reason why there was no video at the start of the altercation was because people were too afraid getting away from him. And the, the, didn't, the videos didn't start until they saw that situation was under control. I knew I had to act and I acted in a way that would protect the other passengers, protect myself and protect Mr. Neely. I used this hole to restrain him and I did this by leaving my hand on top of his head to control his body. You can see in the video, there's a clear rise and fall of his chest indicating that he was still breathing. And I'm calibrating my grip based on, on the force that he's exerting. And um, I just, I, I mean, I was trying to keep him on the ground as, until the police came. I was praying that the police would come and take this situation, under, uh, take this situation over. I didn't want to be put in that situation, but I couldn't just sit still and let, let him carry out these threats. Of course he didn't want to be put in that situation. Again, if you have any common sense, you already know that. So the claim that uh, Daniel Penny, as some sort of white supremacist murderer, 
waiting for his chance to murder a black man on the subway. No, that's, that's not reality. That's fantasy. That's a fantasy world scenario. Of course he doesn't want to be. He's, go, he's trying to go to work. He doesn't want to be in this situation. Who wants to be in that situation? He's like, you think he's happy? He's on the way to work and there's some crazy guy making threats? I'm sure in his mind, he's thinking like, oh man, why, you know, why do I have to be in this situation? Now I got to make a choice here. It he guarantees he's, he's, he's thinking about that like any person would. And before he decided to act, he's, uh, there's not a lot of time. You know, you, you, it's the thing when you're in a situation like this, you have to make a decision. You have to make it quickly because you've got this man making threats. If, you, if, he, if, he, if he's going to start carrying out those threats, you don't know how much time you have, probably not much. But there's enough time for Daniel Penny to sit there and weigh his options and uh, not to, you know, not to try to read his mind or anything, but if he's a normal human being, then I'm sure that there's a part of him that was thinking, man, what, like, uh, why? I, I don't want to have to get involved here. I don't want to have to do this. But then the other part of you is going to think, well, if I don't do anything, something terrible is going to happen. I don't want to live with that for the rest of my life. Uh, you know, someone has to do something. I know that I can, so I'm just going to do it. And that's the decision that he made which is a courageous, heroic decision. Daniel Penny also is clearly not a moron, and he's, he's aware of the culture that he lives in. He's aware of our society and the way these things work. And so he's, again, not to try to read his mind, he's probably also aware that if he steps up, he's putting himself in physical danger, but then also, if things go horribly wrong, he's, you know, he's putting himself in danger of the, the social media mob and, and, and prosecution slash persecution. You know, he's aware of all that. And he decided anyway to act. And that is, uh, that is actually courageous and heroic. And that's the reason that they're trying to take him down. You know, I said with YouTube that uh, the, the, uh, the real violation is being effective and persuasive and it's a similar kind of thing here, only, of course, much, much worse. Where his real violation, his real crime was being heroic. You know, was, was not sitting there helplessly, hoping that somebody else steps up, waiting for the government to save him, waiting for the police to show up. Because that's what the system wants. The system wants that. They want you to be helpless and scared and meek and just sitting there on your hands, trembling, head down, hoping the crazy guy doesn't come after you. That's what they want. That's what they want all of us doing. They want all of us sitting here, head down, trembling in fear. That's, they want, that, that's how they want us to live our lives every day. Daniel Penny said, no, I'm not going to live that way. I'm not, that's not the kind of man that I'm going to be. That's not the kind of man I am. And so they're going to try to destroy his life for it. I mean, it's... Uh, I, 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 Words almost fail here. I mean, you could call it a miscarriage of justice, which it is. You could call it persecution, which it is. It's all of those things, but it's uh, it's so much more than that. I mean, it's just it's evil beyond words, really. And a and a and a a society that that punishes men like Daniel Penny, a society that punishes Daniel Penny while making a martyr and a hero out of Jordan Neely is a society that can't last. It, it, we, we, we cannot continue this way. That's, that, that is a non-functioning 
suicidal society. Speaking of non-functioning, a little bit of a update here. This is from the Daily Mail. Megan Fox furiously hit back at a quote-unquote clout chaser who accused her of having forced her sons to dress up in girls' clothing. The 37-year-old actress shares her sons Noah, Bodie, and Journey with her ex-husband Brian Austin Green. Robbie Starbuck, who ran for U.S. Congress in 2022, claimed to have witnessed two of the former couple's children say they were forced by their mom to wear girls' clothes as their nanny tried to console them. Um, Starbuck, 34, a Republican from California, tweeted that he used to live in the uh, same gated community as the famous family and their kids played at the park. Fox fired up her Instagram and lambasted Starbuck for using children as leverage or social currency, adding that, quote, exploiting my children's my child's gender identity to gain attention in your political campaign has put you on the wrong side of the universe and declared it defiantly, you effed with the wrong witch, calling herself a witch. I don't think we will um, object to that at all. Probably an accurate assessment. Addressing Starbuck directly, she wrote, quote, I really don't want to give you this attention because clearly you're a clout chaser, but let me teach you something. She fumed, irregardless of how desperate you may become at any given moment to acquire wealth, power, success, or fame, never use children as leverage or social currency, especially under malevolent and erroneous pretense. So Megan Fox, first of all, went to the thesaurus before. You could tell that there was a, there was a, a version of this post that she had ready to go, but then she filtered it through a thesaurus. She, she took a couple of the words she wanted to use, and she went to like look up synonyms. And, uh, and that's how she ends up throwing words like malevolent and erroneous pretense. Irregardless. Honest to God, you could tell everything you need to know about somebody based on whether they use the word irregardless. When, when regardless is just, regardless works fine. We don't need irregardless. You're, you're adding an extra syllable onto it just to make yourself sound smarter, but it has exactly the opposite effect. Um, and it's also very funny to me that she's accusing uh, Robbie Starbuck. She's accusing him of using her children to clout chase. And uh, what, what else is she saying? To gain attention. Um, using them as social currency. That's what she's saying that he's doing that. When in fact, that is exactly what she is doing. That, that is 100%. She has, she has perfectly, I mean, using, putting some of these words to the side, irregardless and all that. Aside from that, she has perfectly uh, and quite eloquently described her own approach to parenting. Like, that is the only reason that you dress your boys up in girls' clothes and, and parade them around town. It's because you are, quote, clout chasing you're trying to get attention. You're using your sons as leverage to get attention. And you're using them as social currency. Megan, like your, your sons aren't even people to you. They're, they are, um, they're fashion accessories. They're fashion statements. They're little uh, tokens that you cash in at the prize counter to get more attention, more clout, the virtue signal, that's all it is. You know, when you dress your boy up in girls' clothes, like, it's, you're not turning him into a girl because that's impossible, but you're dehumanizing him. Okay, you're trying to take away his, his boyhood, but you're also taking away his humanity. You're, de you're using your child 
in a dehumanizing way to get attention to yourself. That is the only reason that you would do that. And of course, uh, Megan Fox will claim, well, I didn't dress my son up that way. I didn't, I didn't dress him up. Well, no, we already, we, as we covered uh, on last week, um, your, your, your child does not go to the store by himself with his own credit card uh, to buy his own clothing. He doesn't do that. Okay. You, you make the decision to buy girl clothes for your son and to dress him in them. And at least with one of her sons, she did that from a very young age. So you made that decision. You decided that this is what your son's going to be because you didn't want him to have a normal childhood. You didn't care about him having a normal childhood. You didn't, especially having a normal boyhood. You didn't care about any of that. You don't care if your son is happy, if your son is well-adjusted. You don't care about your son at all. You saw your children as an opportunity to bring attention to yourself because that's all you care about. You call yourself a witch, and I will not disagree. So let's get to the comment section. Jaffa says, Greg is one seriously committed employee, literally putting his balls on the line for the Daily Wire. Big respect to Greg. Uh, yeah, you know, sometimes you got to go all the way. Um, well, not all the way. We're, so we're not going to go that far. But uh, sometimes you do, in, in all seriousness, you do, uh, especially if you want to, you know, reveal these horrific things about the gender transition uh, industry. You got to find creative ways of doing it because, you um, you know, they're not going to tell the truth. Now, there, there was a time not all that long ago when people in the gender transition industry, when these, uh, these parasites, these vultures who feast on confusion and misery and, and, you know, turn it into profit, they monetize it. There was a time when they would speak pretty openly about all this stuff. So you wouldn't have to use any trickery. You wouldn't have to go undercover or anything like that. They would just say it out in the open. That was our, that was our Vanderbilt uh, investigation. We didn't really have to do, we didn't do any undercover work for that because uh, they said it all, we, they put it all on the internet themselves. All we had to do was, all we had to do was go find it and compile it and then say, here you go. But in part because of that and because of uh, work that other conservatives have done, like lives of TikTok and others, um, they've realized that they can't speak so openly anymore, uh, which doesn't mean that they've stopped doing these things. They just won't talk about it. So if you want to get the truth, then you have to find other ways of uh, getting it out of them. Starry Knight says, chances are aliens do exist, but if they're advanced enough to master space travel, why would they be crashing all over Earth? Like us, they'd likely have their top scientists and astronauts working on these missions. Yeah, well, look, this is the same argument, uh, and I think you can go to Ben Shapiro's YouTube channel, and he's got the, the video of when, when you know, I was on his show last week, and we had this argument about aliens. And um, uh, actually, I was on his show to talk about our, our investigation into the gender transition industry. But right before we went on the air, I, I, I asked him, are we going to have a little bit of time to talk about the aliens as well? And so he begrudgingly accepted. But this is the same point that he made, which is, that, well, if they're so uh, technologically advanced, then why would they crash? And I'll say to you, Starry Night, what I said to Ben, which is that I'm sorry the aliens aren't perfect, okay? I'm sorry they're not perfect like you. So if we have, and it looks like this might be the case, if we have um, beings from other solar systems visiting Earth all the time, it seems to be a pretty frequent occurrence. 
every once in a while, they're going to have a crash landing. So they're not, they're not batting a thousand. Sorry about that. And you think you could sit there in judgment. Well, maybe they'd never visited Earth before. They don't know everything there is to know about the atmosphere, about everything. It's like, so they've never been here. Things go a little bit wrong. They're pretty far from home. You know, so it's hard to troubleshoot. I just think it's, it's frankly, the disrespect that so many of you show to these, uh, to these visitors who came all this way, only to be often ignored completely, and if they're not ignored, mocked. Truly. I mean, it's rude is what it is. Um, Nikki says, I would love to have a hysterectomy because I have problems with my ovaries, but apparently I'm too young for that. Oh, the irony. And I've heard many, I've heard many stories like this, many comments like this uh, from people saying, well, I needed to get a hysterectomy for like valid medical reasons. Uh, we talked last week about uh, you know, the, the orchiectomy, which is the removal of the testicles. There are valid medical reasons to do that. Like if you have testicular cancer, it would be the, the big one that comes to mind. Um, but even in those cases, to actually uh, procure those surgeries, to actually, you know, to, to, to um, get those kind of surgeries, it takes time. And it takes, it's, it's actually, it turns out, much more difficult to get those kinds of procedures done if you really need them than if you don't need them at all, but you're just confused about your gender. Carl says, hi, Matt, big fan, uh, but you should branch out and talk about something other than the trans and LGBT stuff. Enough has been said about that. There's an invasion at the southern border that you ignore. Election integrity, crime, drugs, World War III on the horizon. Those issues could use your attention, but you ignore them. You know, I always find these kind of comments funny because, uh, for one thing, I talk about like seven or eight different topics every show. Uh, I probably cover a wider range of subjects than, than, uh, than most people in the commentator slash podcasting space. But it is true, of course, that I focus especially on LGBT agenda, trans ideology, you know, issues related to family, those kinds of things. And I do that because I think it's a subject of special importance in our culture right now. And I believe that I have a, a, something worthwhile to say about it. And so that's what I do. Um, I do discuss all the issues that you mentioned, particularly crime. I talk about that all the time. But I have my own area of focus, which, which may not be the same as the areas that you like to focus on. So here, here's an idea. Um, and this has been my, my message that I've been telling everyone who raises this, this objection to me. Rather than trying to tell me what topics I should talk about, you know, rather than walking into the, uh, the pizza shop and insisting that they sell burritos instead, why don't you open the burrito shop, right? Like, why don't you focus on the issues that matter to you and, and try, to, try to move the conversation in those directions? So why don't you? I'm not stopping you from doing that. Um, I've been talking about the trans agenda and these kinds of issues for like 10 years and for most of that time, I was basically ignored. It took me a very, very long time to get people to listen and care and, and to be mobilized, okay? And obviously, it's not just me, but those of us who have been, who have been talking about this and have been talking about it for that long, you know, back uh, in, in the early days, it was, a, it was a lonely fight and not that many people were listening. So we had to work a long time towards that goal. And now that we're finally making some progress, We've got people like you who come along and want us to switch topics. 
It's like, no, this is the worst time. Look, we finally have gotten to this point after all of that effort of building this foundation. And now you come along and say, I'm bored. Let's talk about something else. Um, no, I'm not going to do that. But I mean, you can. If there's some other topic that, uh, that, for, that you find to be especially important and that, and that speaks to you, that resonates with you in a special kind of way, then, uh, then, then, go, then do that. Put the work in. Do the legwork. Um, and I'll support you. You know, if you take one of these other topics that I don't talk about as much, you know, and, and you say, well, this really means something to me, and I think people need to care about it, and I think more, more people should care about it, and here are all the reasons why, uh, and, and you do that, I will amplify your work. I'll support you. But why don't you do that instead of coming to me and saying, here's what I want you to talk about instead. Take this platform that you've been able to build, and uh, I'm going to, me as a random stranger... I'm going to assign you the topics that I think you should be talking about. Doesn't work that way. But uh, thanks for listening anyway. Introducing the Precision 5 Razor, one handle plus one blade cartridge kit for only $14.99. Jeremy's the lowest razor, uh, lowest cost for a razor, and only for a limited time. It's crafted with a luxurious tungsten handle, five welded steel blades, and a flip-back trimmer for a close, smooth shave around hairlines and hard-to-reach places. But remember... The Precision 5 is no ordinary razor. It's a sword in the battle for beliefs, a banner to wave into a new economy, a precision instrument to force woke companies to earn back your dollar and stop denigrating your values. But it's also just still just a great razor to give you a great shave. Stop giving your money to woke corporations that hate you. Join over 125,000 men who have ditched their woke razors and switched to Jeremy's. There's never been a better time or price. Go to jeremysrazors.com today. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Anyone who's seen What is a Woman, and millions of people have by now, know that uh, at the end, we do provide an answer to the elusive question. My wife makes an appearance in the very last scene, spoiler, and delivers the correct biologically sound definition, which is a, a woman is an adult human female. And that answer is simple and accurate and obviously necessary to establish. But once it has been established, there is, there's plenty more to say about the subject. What is a woman, both the question and the film that revolves around it, is meant to be the beginning of discussion, not the end of it. A woman is an adult human female. Every woman is that and must be that. But there is so much more to womanhood than its basic biological definition. Just as a man is an adult human male, every man is that and must be that. But again, there is so much more to say. This is a point made, I think rather accidentally, by a viral Instagram clip featuring a female who some time ago changed her name to James and attempted to transition into a man. And James now calls herself the trans coach and offers life advice and motivational tips for other trans people. Yet in a recent video, James revealed that she still has a lot to learn about the male identity that she is attempting to assume. What you're about to watch, it's truly one of the saddest things you'll, you'll, you've likely seen in a while, but also quite profound in a few different ways. And I'll explain, but uh, first, watch. Nobody told me how lonely being a man is. I had closer friendships with random women I met in the bathroom before I transitioned at clubs because of how open women are than I've had in my eight years of transitioning. Because women are just so much more vulnerable and deep than men. 
but to have known, and I think a lot of trans men feel this, is we knew what de depth felt like before we transitioned. We knew what it felt like to like have people want to hug us and have people want to talk to us and have a community. And then you transition and you're just a guy walking down the street that people cross the street so that they're not near you. And friendships are so much harder to build. And people are colder. And what's hard is none of this invalidates how real and raw women and people who are in marginalized groups feel about cis white men. All of that's valid. But I also now understand why the suicide rate is so much higher in men. Because this shit is lonely. And I'm an emotionally mature man. I know how to build friendships, and it is still really, really hard. Try to think about how you can, in your small little community where you feel safe, can reach out to the men in your life and just help them feel maybe seen for a moment. Or do do little little conversations to help their emotional maturity so that they can reach out to people and have deeper guy friendship. Now, there's a lot in that two-minute monologue that's simply wrong, starting with her calling herself a man, of course, but even the wrong parts reveal something essential, if accidentally, about manhood, about trans ideology, um, about our culture. So here's what we're witnessing in this video. A woman was driven by her own self-loathing and confusion to reject her womanhood and attempt to become a man. She did not succeed in this pursuit and never will, but through the help of drugs and surgery, she has managed to create a semi-convincing costume of a man. It is convincing enough, apparently, that most people she encounters reflexively accept her and see her as a man. And she had imagined that being seen as a man would be a great relief for her, a source of peace and freedom. But instead, she's found that manhood is not the utopian fantasy land that she imagined it would be. Men in the modern world are, as she has discovered, often deeply isolated, alienated, alone. It is, it is uh, lonely to be a man, she says, and she's right. Now, she didn't know this before she set out on the fool's errand of transitioning, but she has now discovered that men carry a heavy burden, a cross that is invisible to many other people, many other women. Now she finds herself shouldering just a portion of that cross, and it has broken her. She wanted to be a man, but was not prepared for what that means. And how could she be prepared? She wasn't a man, therefore could not have possibly known what it was like to be one, what it would be like to be one. And she still doesn't know because she still isn't one. She says that women are deeper and more emotionally mature, which is why it's much less lonely to be a woman. But that isn't true. I mean, women aren't deeper and more mature. They're just different. They are women. They're more relational by nature. They're more empathetic. They're more affectionate. They're more emotional. They're softer in many ways. Women are more fragile because it is easier to hurt a woman physically and emotionally. Um, this, this all can be a source of frustration for us as men, but it's also uh, what we love about women. We love women because women are women. They're not us. They're different. They have a different way of being, of existing in the universe. They bring another dimension into our lives, and we sense that we need that dimension to be truly whole. A healthy man doesn't want to be a woman. He doesn't want to adopt her ways and her manner of thinking, much less her body, but he does want to be, he wants to be with a woman. He wants not to become her, but to be united with her. And 
uh, I can say this about the inner life of a man because I am one. James, quote unquote, misses all of this because she isn't. Instead, she, she surmises that we're simply shallow and emotionally immature, which is exactly the kind of patronizing, contemptuous, anti-male cliche that contributes to the isolation and loneliness that she's complaining about. Now, it may be true of some men on an individual basis. Yeah, there are immature men out there. But generally speaking, it's not a lack of depth that causes men to be quieter, more stoic, more reserved, more distant. And it's not even the intentional alienation and marginalization of an aggressively anti-male masculinity-hating culture, though that is part of the story. Some of what James is tapping into, or at least for the first time noticing, has been an immutable aspect of manhood for as long as the human species has existed. There is indeed more to being a man than, sim than simply having male reproductive organs and chromosomes. There is also the actual experience of being a man, the inner life of a man, which runs much deeper than, quote-unquote, James understands, even now. A, a man, I think, tends to be, um, among other things, more in tune with the harshest aspects of reality. He is uniquely called to confront the darkness in the world and uniquely equipped to, for this calling, you know, uniquely equipped to, to handle all of this. Um, it's not that we don't feel anything. We do feel, and we feel with great depth, but we carry those feelings differently. And often we carry it in silence, alone. This is how we're wired, and the world needs us to be wired this way. Women are also oriented more towards community. They build and depend upon relationships. Men are more solitary by nature. Again, these differences are hardwired. You know, when we say that, that men shouldn't cry, uh, it's not just a joke. There, there's an important truth there. Like, really, men should not cry. That's, actually, that's an actual thing. It's not just a, some kind of macho cliche. Because the world needs men to pick up their burdens shoulder them quietly, and get on with business. The more that men become emotional and soft, the more that society ceases to function as it should. We need emotion and softness in the world. That's why we have women. We also need toughness and hardness, and that's why we're supposed to have men. The men who fulfill this duty are accused of being unfeeling or lacking depth. But the truth is that they have a depth that people like James can't even begin to comprehend. And she probably never will. She has accessed only the surface level of the male experience, and she's already fleeing for the hills. If she ever got the entire thing, I mean, if she could ever actually fully inhabit the mind and the inner life of a man, it would be, it would be torture for her, as it would be for any woman. That's because women are not meant to carry the burden of manhood any more than men are meant to carry the burden of womanhood. We are where we belong already which is the identity that we were born with. We cannot comprehend what it's really like to have any other identity. As for uh, James, she will not allow herself to comprehend anything really because she gets close to partially understanding, but then she makes a left turn and runs away. That's why at the end she makes sure to clarify that women and allegedly marginalized minorities are still totally justified in treating cisgender, quote-unquote, white males like dirt. She was nearly on the verge of discovering that we are human beings, that we have feelings, that we suffer, but her, her ideology won't allow her to finish connecting the dots. So it's all futile.
just like her transition. It amounts to nothing in the end. And that is why she is ultimately, in the end, still canceled. That'll do it for the show today. As we move over to the members block, you become a member today by using code Walsh at checkout for two months free on all annual plans. Hope to see you there. If not, talk to you tomorrow. Godspeed.